Good morning all, um, how are you? Good, um, it's great to be back in church with you this morning and in the new year. Um, I hope you've had a relaxing, uh, joyful Christmas break and are feeling really re-energised for the year ahead. I certainly am. As Mickey said, we've got um, our youth group camp this week. We're taking 60 people up the coast, so please pray for us. Um, but yeah, also praise God for us that we can tell all these kids about Jesus. Uh, I think I know you all, but if I don't, my name is Isaac, and I'm one of the youth pastors here at Richmond Anglican, and it's a real privilege for me to be able to speak to you today um, as we continue our short series in 2 Timothy. I'm hoping, I'm praying that um, when I speak to you today, it's not just my words that you hear, but that you actually hear God's speaking to you, and that God actually works in your heart and in your soul and stirs up a love um, in you for him and his word. So let me pray about that now before we begin. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for gathering your people here today as we sit under the authority of your word. Lord, please let it not just be my voice that we hear today, but that we hear your voice. Lord, work in our hearts, write your word on our soul, and stir up in us an overwhelming affection for you and your son. Lord, let me faithfully decipher, understand, and then communicate your word today. We do this all for your glory. Amen. So if you weren't aware, uh, we've been going through a bit of a short series of 2 Timothy in January. We've done 2 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 3. If you missed it, they're on the website. Go listen to them. Pretty much, if you um, haven't got the gist of 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Paul is writing a letter to a young pastor called Timothy who he has sent out into the field, advising him, giving him warnings, and just kind of mentoring him. In this first um, section of chapter 3, Paul talks about sinful people and what they will do in the last days. Uh, If you weren't aware, those last days that Paul talks about are now, um, that's seen all throughout scripture. Um, So his last days are now, ever since Christ's birth, we're living in a period between when Christ has come, but we're waiting for him to come again. So what Paul is telling Timothy about these evil people in the last days It was relevant to Timothy, they were the last days, but it's relevant to us now, we're in those last days as well. And I think when we read this list and when we think about it, that actually becomes obvious to us, because we can read, we read this list and realise that yes, we actually see those things all the time. So, let me read it again, have your Bibles open as we go through this please, fact-checking what I'm saying and looking and reading along as I go through. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. But mark this, remember this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. We see these things all the time in our culture, all around us. People will be lovers of money, that seems like a given, in our societies, our society, our education system, our universities, our super, what's it all set up to do? amass us more money. People will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, Paul says to Timothy here. Well, look at our culture. It's sex-obsessed. Promiscuity is everywhere. It's not only tolerated, it's actually encouraged. And this reminds me a little bit of what Paul says in Romans 1 when he actually makes a similar list to what he does here at the beginning of 2 Timothy. 
making a similar list of the evil things in the world. Romans 1, 29 to 32, he says, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, this is the crucial part, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. They know about the penalty of what they do, but they not only continue to do it, they approve of those who practice them. Our society, our world is going away from God They know about God's power, Paul says in that same passage in Romans. He talks about God's invisible qualities that are made known to everyone so that no one has an excuse. God's invisible qualities are everywhere. They're made known, yet our world keeps inventing ways of doing evil. As Christians with the knowledge of the Bible, we should not be surprised at this. But why? Why is Paul writing a letter to a young pastor called Timothy, telling him about what the world is going to do, what evil people are going to do. There are a couple of reasons in this passage that tells us why Paul is telling Timothy and also us here. So I'm a part of the young adults community here at Richmond Anglican, and during term time, uh, we have a Bible study on Tuesday nights um, at church here. And last year, we went through a bit of a season of playing a game called Real Life Mafia. Got some, I'm liking the giggles I'm getting from the people who know what I'm talking about. If you're not familiar with normal mafia, um, not the real life bit, is a game where a group of people sit down together and they're given a card, and the card tells them what character they are in the game. In mafia, there are characters such as, you guess it, the mafia. Uh, there are also townspeople. Um, there are assassins, doctors, there's lots of different versions. And in this game, the mafia are trying to kill everyone else, and everyone else is firstly trying to avoid dying, but then... Um, trying to get the mafia killed before the mafia can kill them. And you do that by the mafia at night time in the game, everyone puts their heads down, you close your eyes, the mafia can kill someone, and during daytime, everyone opens their eyes and they can vote someone out of the game. That's kind of how the card version works. And so at Young Adults, we decided to play a little bit of a different version of this game called Real Life Mafia. It may sound a little bit alarming. No, we weren't just actually murdering each other in cold blood. There aren't bodies buried under the youth hall. If there are, I certainly didn't put them there. Um, But how this game works, you get a card, mafia or townsperson, and the real life bit is that we switched off the lights, we played it in the youth hall, and it was pretty much pitch black, and what the mafia have to do, they have to go around at night in the dark and slit the townspeople's throat with their finger And then the townspeople are dead on the ground. They can't move. They're out of the game. What happens is how this round of nighttime can end is that the townspeople have to wander around, firstly hoping they don't get their throat slit, and they have to try and find dead bodies on the ground. And when they do, they can yell out, dead body, and then anyone near the light can turn the light on. And then it's daytime. And during daytime, you discuss with everyone, no one knows who is who, to try and vote the mafia out. 
This cycle continues until all the mafia are dead or all the townspeople are dead. Uh, we did eventually stop playing this game because Sam um, ended up bleeding from his head because he tried to escape the mafia, which happened to be me at that point. Um, anyway, how this game ends up working is that the mafia, no one knows who they are, creep around the room and they pretend to just be town people. They go around pretending to be normal and then they try to stay silent and then they strike. And then, if you're dead, you can't make noise. At the last second, they strike. This is a lot how Paul describes those people in the first half of 2 Timothy 3. Paul says these evil people, the people we were talking about before, they creep around, infiltrate our homes and churches. Look at um, verses 6 to 9 with me. He says, They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Just like in real-life mafia, when the mafia had to creep around unnoticed to kill and take advantage of the other players to win, that's what these people do. These lovers of themselves, these lovers of money, these unholy people, ungrateful people, unloving people, these people filled with selfish desires who know about God, yet reject him, these people that not only tolerate evil, but approve and encourage it, Paul says they creep around, they worm their way into homes and take advantage of the weak. Paul is telling Timothy and us about these people, firstly, so that we are aware of them. Have any of you guys had termites in your house or in a shed? Yep. I'm sure some of you do. You'll know someone who does. Termites under the surface, you can look at your house and it will look fine. Nothing wrong. But under the surface, it can be rotting away. The same can be said with these people. Now, there's an obvious um, physical manifestation of this, right? Now, when Paul was talking to Timothy, I think this is what he meant. There are actual people going into your homes going into your churches, into your families who are like this and they're influencing you. That still happens with us today, but I think there's actually something a little bit more worrying for us today in our culture that Timothy didn't actually have to worry about. I'm guessing that, yeah, everyone who's listening to me has a TV in their house, a radio in your house. Um, Most of you will have a mobile phone, which is a mini computer in your hands. Well... What are you watching on them? What are you listening to on the radio? What are your children doing on their phones at night time? Do you know? I hope you do. Do you know that the average age in Australia for boys to watch pornography for the first time is 11 years old? 11 years old. Isn't that sad? I think it's very sad. Do you let a worldly understanding of life influence how you speak, how you parent your children, how you spend your money? Or are you letting the word of God influence those things? Paul tells us this list of evils so that we are aware that they are happening and they are creeping into our homes, churches and lives and we must guard against them. To get rid of termites, you have to know that they're there to get rid of them. Same with this. Paul wants us to know. We can see that he wants us to know because in verse 1, have a look, 
he says, mark this or remember this. Don't forget this, Timothy. There are all these people. Mark this. Remember this. And then he finishes that paragraph in verse 5 saying, have nothing to do with them. It's a warning. I also think there's another reason that Paul gives us this warning about evil and the world. He actually says it to encourage us. I'm going to read verse 8 and 9 again. Have a look with me. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Their folly will be clear to everyone. If you didn't know, Janes and Jambres are the names given to the magicians who come up against Moses in Exodus 7. So Aaron and Moses, they go to Pharaoh and they say to Pharaoh, you know, let the Israelites go. And Pharaoh says no. And then they want to show Pharaoh some power. So they have these staffs, they throw them on the ground and they turn into snakes. Pretty impressive. Then Pharaoh calls his magicians, Janes and Jambres. They have their staffs, they throw them on the ground And they do the same. They turn into snakes. The magicians, Janos and Jambres, were able to replicate some of the tricks of Aaron and Moses, but their power eventually fades. In fact, in that story, Aaron's snake swallows up the magician's snake. They eventually cannot replicate the work of Yahweh anymore. And that is the point of Paul mentioning them. There is a limit to the power of evil. They will not get very far because as in the case of those men, as in the case of Janus and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. Paul warns us in the first half of this chapter, mark this, these evil people and thoughts and ideas are here and they creep around and infiltrate our lives. We must have nothing to do with those things. But their power is not endless. It will fade. Then have a look in verse 10. There is a turning point in this chapter. Paul says, however, in verse 10, there is an alternative to this evil behavior. There's an antidote to this evil behavior. And Paul is telling us that we need to have it. We need to have this antidote. And that is this. The antidote is that Paul talks about. The antidote is God's word. And the alternative behavior is godly suffering. Look with me at verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. The antidote to the evil behaviour invading our culture, creeping into our homes, churches, schools and families, is faithfulness to God's word and the teachings in this book. And this will lead to the alternative behaviour that Paul talks about of godly suffering. Paul is saying that it is easy to be morally evil. It's easier in life to be a lover of yourself than a lover of God. It's easier to be greedy than it is to be generous. It's easier to love your own pleasure than to serve others. Paul is not saying that it's hard to do those things. Duh, that's why everyone does them. He lists all these evil behaviours out, then says, you, however, are not like that. You don't commit those evil behaviours. You don't let them infiltrate your homes. And the way you do that is through faithfulness to God's word and godly suffering. Deciding to be a people that are not going to be evil is going to cost us. It's going to be hard. 
And Paul, he's not on some pedestal here above this. He knows this better than all of us. In this letter, he says in verses 10, 11, 12, have a skim through it while I say this, that Timothy, he's saying to Timothy, Paul's saying to Timothy, you have seen my suffering, you have seen my persecutions, you have followed my life, Timothy. And I'm telling you, Timothy, that with this kind of evil in the world, anyone who takes a stand for Jesus, for godliness, who seeks to live with purity, love, patience, like I have, Timothy, people who seek this out will be persecuted. And Timothy, you can see that in my life and you will see it in yours too. We see that promise by Paul in verse 12. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So how are we as Christians, as God's people at Richmond Anglican who strive to be holy and pure and strive to be faithful to the truth of God's word, how are we going to have the courage, the determination, the motivation to love good rather than evil when it is so much easier to be evil? There are two things that I've identified in this passage that can give us the determination to be a set-apart people acknowledging and accepting the inevitability of suffering. The first is that we must remember the teachings in God's word. And as Paul says in verse 14 of this passage, we must continue in what we have learned and become convinced of. We've learned about God's word. We've learned about Paul's teaching. We've become convinced of its truth, of its power. And Paul's saying we must continue in it. I remember as a kid, I uh, watching the news coverage of when a cyclone would be hitting uh, either North Queensland or Darwin. And I remember seeing the crazy wind, how it affected the houses. The houses would be totally flattened, cars moved around, waves ravishing the the shoreline. But I also remember as a kid seeing trees that weren't going anywhere. And I remember as a kid thinking, a house is bigger than a tree. So if a tree has been knocked over, how is the, sorry, if a house has been knocked over, how is the tree still there? And I was confused as a kid. Obviously, I know now why is the tree still there, because it has roots, deep roots, strong roots that go into the ground, holding it in place. And this is what we need as well. Our roots are God's word. When the storm lashes at us, when gale force winds try to knock us over, when we realize, hey, it's easier to do evil than to do good, when the inevitable suffering comes that Paul has promised in verse 12, we need to have strong roots just like a tree that stands firm in a cyclone. And isn't this exactly what Jesus says in that parable we looked at for the first reading? Build your house on the rocks, not the sand. Have strong foundations, solid foundation, foundations. We must cherish God's word, read on it, dwell on it, and use it to do good and to joyfully accept godly suffering. Verse 16 and 17 of this passage illustrates this really well. It's quite a famous couple of verses that um, tells us a little about the power of God's word. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Our world is evil, and this is the accepted norm, but, however, as Paul says in verse 10, 
we are a set-apart people and being different to the world will lead to suffering. One way that we can have the courage to continue in loving good, not evil, is dwelling on and being in God's word constantly every day, every night. Do you start your morning with the word of God or do you start your morning with Instagram notifications on your phone, on your bedside table? Which one's going to help you more when the inevitable suffering comes? Instagram may even be a detriment, I might say, some of the things. So we need God's word. That's the first thing that can help us. The second motivation for us is that godly suffering, being set apart, loving the good instead of evil, has a reward, an eternal motivation. Look at verse 11 with me again. Paul has just told Timothy about his sufferings, his pain, his persecution, because he refuses to be evil like the world. Then he says at the end of the verse that the Lord has rescued him from them all. Now for Paul, prima facie, that's a really strange thing for him to say. If you know anything about Paul's story, you'll know that he has suffered a lot and it's still going. Yet he still says that the Lord has rescued him from it all. So that can't mean that God didn't let Paul suffer. He obviously did. In fact, this same verse, Paul mentions Lystra. Do you know what happened to Paul and Lystra? Paul was stoned in Lystra. Paul was stoned so violently, so severely, that the mob who stoned him dragged him out of the city and thought he was dead. Yet Paul says, the Lord has rescued me from them all. What Paul means here when he says that the Lord rescued him from it all, it's not that God rescued Paul from it physically, not that God removed the sufferings from Paul, because that's not true, is it? Paul is saying to Timothy that the Lord has stayed with him, preserved his faith, never forsook him, even in the most violence, horrible pain, abuse and persecution, to the point of stoning, where people thought he was dead. Paul is saying that despite all this, the Lord is ensuring that I am walking in faith towards the heavenly kingdom, and by God's grace, the Lord will never let me not inherit that eternal life, that eternal kingdom. The Lord has rescued Paul's faith and has ensured that when Paul kneels before the Lord, he will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I think this is what Paul means when he says the Lord has rescued me. And I think this because if you look at chapter 4, verse 18 in um, 2 Timothy, Paul uses the same word rescue again. He says, chapter 4, verse 18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. So what's the second motivation for refusing to do evil like the world, and joyfully accepting godly suffering on this earth, it is that, like Paul says, the Lord will rescue your faith from every attack. He will preserve your spirit, and by his grace, he will ensure that you will be with him once you die. In the heavenly, eternal kingdom. That's a pretty good motivation, if you ask me. 
Paul was finally rescued by the Lord and brought to the heavenly kingdom. And he is imploring Timothy and imploring us at Richmond Anglican that if we are lovers of good, if we resist evil, it's going to be hard. If we choose godly suffering, it's going to be hard. But we will be rescued into the heavenly kingdom where we have final deliverance. So I promise you on authority of the word of God, that if you stand by Jesus, your crucified, risen, and glorified Christ, you will be rescued into God's heavenly kingdom. This chapter started with Paul explaining the evil of the world to Timothy. Paul tells Timothy that this morally corrupt behavior will become the norm. It will creep into our homes, infiltrate our lives. Paul wants us to be aware that this evil is all around us so we can resist it. But he also wants us to know that there's a limit to the power of evil. It will not reign forever. Paul then gives us an alternative to the evil of this world. The antidote is God's word and the alternative behaviour is godly suffering, just as Paul promised. We must be rooted in the word of God to endure this inevitable suffering. And finally, Paul just doesn't leave us on our own. He gives us motivations, gives us the courage, the determination to endure this alternative life of good rather than evil. He promises that it'll be hard, yes, but he explains that we have God's word to help us and that all who do resist evil for the Lord will be finally rescued into God's heavenly kingdom. A reward so great that everything pales in comparison to it. So let's be a set-apart people, average from Anglican, who choose to do good, have nothing to do with evil, even though we know it's easier, and let's take confidence in knowing that God will rescue our faith and bring us into final deliverance in eternity with him. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you sent Jesus um, to die for us. Lord, we know that our world is just going away from you, that they don't love you, they invent ways of doing evil. Lord, give this congregation work in their hearts and their spirits. Give them the motivation to want to do good rather than evil, to be lovers of good rather than lovers of evil, even though they know it's hard. Lord, and set their eyes on you and on that heavenly kingdom as an eternal motivation. Let them know, give them the confidence that you will rescue their faith, even when the most violent, emotional, physical pain and suffering comes. We do this all for your glory, Lord. Amen.